Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Stone. She's an anchor and correspondent with Voice of America, also known as VOA. And she's author of a new book, Crossing the Divide, 20 Lessons to Help You Thrive in Cross-Cultural Environments. At VOA, Jessica covers the Indo-Pacific region for VOA's English to Asia affiliate. She has reported on past ASEAN summits, U.S. relations with Pacific Island nations, and how closer U.S. Indian technology ties may help counter China's rise. Prior to her current role, Jessica served over nearly a decade as White House correspondent for CGTN America, a Chinese state-run foreign language news channel based in Beijing, during which she reported on the strategic shift toward the Indo-Pacific under the Obama presidency and the outbreak of a U.S.-China trade war under the Trump administration. In addition to her work for VOA and CGTN, Jessica has provided coverage for the South China Morning Post, USA Today, The Washington Times, Fox News, and CBS News. I'm podcasting Jessica today to understand more about her non-traditional career path, I'm put that in quotes, and how it has shown her the importance of bridging cultural and religious divides. I also want to talk to her about the future of China. Jessica, I'm really grateful that you would take time to be on my podcast today. It is a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to the discussion. Thanks, Jessica. All right, so Jessica, I read your book. I loved your book. I was told you have to repeat the title seven times. That's the Frank Luntz rule. So I'm going to repeat the title, which is Crossing the Divide, 20 Lessons to Help You Thrive in Cross-Cultural Environments. Why did you write this book? Well, you might remember during the pandemic, we had a little bit of a change of pace, which finally gave me the opportunity to process what I had learned and gleaned, even subconsciously from working on U.S.-China relations in the context of working with multicultural people and journalists in a Chinese news organization. So if you can imagine five layers of differences and put them in a layer cake and then squish them all together and see what that tastes like, that's what I was eating every day. Every day there Does that were... sound delicious? Was it delicious <laughs> or not so delicious? I am up for the adventure. There were certainly days it was not delicious. There were other days where it was really rewarding to get pieces of it right, because I don't really know that it's possible to get it all right when you are dealing with so many differences amongst people. But I have a lot more humility than I would argue I had then and looking back. And I really firmly believe that the skill set that I started to learn during that period of my career and really started to learn as a child, as I know we'll get into, served me well. I still have more to learn. And it is really a vital skill set for every graduating high school senior across this country going forward. And that's why I wrote the book. I want there to be a resource out there for high school students, for middle school students, even if you're not thinking about going and working in foreign service or international business, you will come across, especially in technology and communications jobs, just a host of differences. 
Some people call it DEI, DEA, and I, but it's also cross cultural competency. And that is the skill set we need as we work across video screens, across the planet. And who knows, maybe the next generation will be working intergalactically. Oh my gosh, exactly. <laughs> All right. So tell folks about your background because I think you have embraced being different. I would put that in quotes, being different. So what do you mean by being different? Have you made that work for you? Well, first off, I want to make sure people understand. I think we all think of ourselves as being different and maybe a little bit misunderstood or a lot misunderstood, Yes, particularly during a teenage years. I do sure. not own that corner of being different <laughs> at all. I'm a white straight female with blonde hair. So people look at me and they're like, oh, you, you know, you run the show. You don't have any differences. But growing up in Mobile, Alabama, as the child of two Yankees, one of whom grew up Jewish and has a very Jewish persona, personality and look, the daughter of a, a Catholic, Italian, Swedish immigrant, I felt pretty different because I was pretty feisty. I know I probably am pretty feisty now, but I was, I came out of the womb this way. I can't help it. The baby, I was born this way. This was not what you did in the deep South. You wore bows. You spoke to whom you were, who spoke to you. You said, yes, ma'am. And no, sir. You did not play with the boys and you did not get dirty in your pretty little frilly thing. Those are all things I didn't really, I didn't want to go with the flow in any respect of that culturally. To add matters to that, my parents, as I said earlier, were raised in different religious backgrounds, both Yankees. Then they converted to evangelical Christianity before having their family. And so we had multiple layers of differences just in my home alone between grandparents and the Jewish celebrations that we continued throughout my childhood. At the time, I didn't really think it was cool to get to drink grape juice or pretend it was wine when I was a kid and say all these uh, prayers in another language for Hanukkah or for Passover. I'm really grateful we did it now as an adult, but I felt super weird about it. I did not like being Jewish. I did not like having a Jewish last name. I felt really other. And then the personality traits of sort of feeling held back by the super traditional conservative culture around me that didn't square with me. So that's what I mean by being different for me. I think the way that I made it work for me, and, and you could argue that sometimes it just developed naturally, is finding outlets. Writing was a huge outlet. Pen palling was a huge outlet. Back when we wrote letters, folks, Someday you'll learn about letters in a book. They don't have them anymore, <laughs> but I, that's how I became a writer. I wrote my friends as we moved around the country. I decided to embrace speaking a second language early at age seven. I made what it. What language did you learn? French. Oh. Which is well, the language you know, of diplomacy. That it talks about in your book and it changed, and speaking French changed your life in many ways. I really think it did. It gave me a, another way to look at the world through the culture and the philosophers of another country and culture that's really arguably much less religious than my own. So that was a different vantage point, forcing myself to speak only French when I studied in France eventually as a college student, uh, handed me uh, some interesting situations with friends, didn't necessarily make me super popular among my English speaking friends, but definitely helped me master the language, which was my goal. And all along, it's really been helpful covering diplomacy at the UN with French speakers, with West Africans, with Caribbeans. When I went to cover the Haiti earthquake in 2010, it was incredibly helpful. All of the politicians in Haiti speak French. My translator fixer speaks French. And that's how we would figure out what people were saying if he couldn't find an English word. So these are just experiences that I think I embraced a little more than I might have if I hadn't already felt like I'm on the outside looking in. I might as well embrace this in some form or fashion. I was huge into drama. 
huge into being dramatic, hard to believe, I know, took singing and music really seriously as a way to express myself. And so that was really, I think, how I parlayed it. And that cross-cultural sensitivity kind of got put to the side for a while as I worked in local TV news, but I really enjoyed covering refugee issues in upstate New York, which is a big resettlement area, but particularly during the war in Bosnia. We got a lot of Bosnian Muslims, some interesting issue sets with them since they like to cook over an open flame indoors. Not the best recipe for old housing stock no. in upstate New York. No. And, you know, a huge influx of Muslim Americans in a part of the country that really still has arguments between the Catholics, the Polish Orthodox, and the Polish Catholics, and the uh, Jewish population. So, Jessica, tell me, when you say cross-cultural, and you referenced cross-cultural earlier, how would you define cross-cultural? Because I think it means lots of things in lots of different contexts. But yeah. you put it in the title of your book. How do you define it? I think that's an important question. I see it as literally crossing cultures that can be cultures inside a country or outside a country. What my personal experience is probably half and half. I mean, I crossed cultures internal to the United States between Yankees and Southerners, Jews and Christians, Christians and non-Christians, but also globally. I think my agenda with using that in the title is really to push people outside of domestic cross-cultural, or if they do focus on that, to leverage it for going beyond. Our country is becoming so much more international. So domestic cross-cultural work is going to increase because we have so many refugee populations and so many immigrants from all backgrounds. So I don't think we can just say it is a skill set that you need to work across continents or across oceans, but culture has so many layers, right? It's nationality, it's ethnicity, it's religion, it's race, it's gender, it's gender identity. And yet, I think those skill sets are somewhat similar across the spectrum. I envision it as sort of the classic cross-culture that can be either done yeah. domestically or internationally. So, Jessica, you have worked in all sorts of, I'm going to say, interesting places. You've reported from Haiti. You've reported from Afghanistan. You've reported from Vietnam. You've reported from China. Tell us a little bit about what your experience was like in Afghanistan. Wow. I didn't realize the power of seeing another female until I actually saw one and I just broke down in tears. You really? just don't see women's faces very much. And this was in 2009 that I went, arguably on the swing up towards religious and gender freedoms for women. I was there for two months, two thirds of the time I was with the US military. You know, I saw Western women in military garb, but seeing Afghan women just did something to me because. Man, it's like you have this one thing in common with this other human being and you want to reach out, but like every cultural barrier is there because they don't even consider you a woman. You're a Western woman, so you're a man. Plus, they can see you, but you can't see them. They're hidden. They barely ever come out of the house, at least at the time, particularly the Pashto women. Honestly, I didn't even see my my dear friends that were much more secular. I didn't see their partners and, and wives and sisters at the time. It was just not done. And so, yeah, really emotional, really amazing to think of like this being sort of part of the cradle of civilization, particularly in the Ottoman Empire and the East Asian empires and, and how all of those things crossed because you're basically at the Silk Road of the international spice trade and you're seeing people live in dirt, huts, no electricity, no refrigeration. At one point, my fixer, which is the person that sort of helps you with logistics, wanted to purchase 
dried sheep or goat milk balls, which are literally look like stones because that's how his family kept calcium in their bodies during the wow. winter. Time. So really, really primitive. Obviously, our goals in the U.S. military were really lofty that we were going to change all of this. Even after 20 years, we made a dent, but not a lasting dent. I learned so much. I feel like I really got a unique experience. I spent a lot of time with Hazara men, which is a secular population that were just really intellectual, really curious. They would kind of identify with the Jewish state. They wanted to be Zionists <laughs> and have their own state. So they quizzed me on Zionism, about which I am not an expert now or then. I mean, the air was so clean and so crisp and you're up so high in parts of that country because you're in the foothills of the Himalayas. And there were times I felt super in danger. And then there were times where I was just like, wow, this is this is like a painting. And I'm very grateful for the US military who took good care of me. I got really dehydrated one day and they had to give me fluids. I was really grateful for that because you go down quick. It's hotter than you realize. It's drier than you realize. The violence was primitive. It's all roadside bombs and it's AK-47s. A fascinating, fascinating place. It doesn't get out of my blood. I still think about going back. I'm really sad I never made it back before what happened last August, and I'm not sure I will now. Wow. Tell me about, you also reported from Vietnam. What was that like? Wow. Um, there's a phrase in French that says, ça bouge. It moves. There is such an energy in Vietnam. It's a majority under 35. It's really young. It's really entrepreneurial. Its version of communism is allowing it to experiment much more with capitalism and with micro enterprises than China's is now. You know, everybody's on a moped, everybody's zipping around. So there's just this incredible energy, even in the oppressive humidity. I just spent time in Hanoi, which of course I would not have been able to do so. <laughs> 40 or 50 years ago. The other major takeaway I had from being in Vietnam is this Confucian ideal of reconciliation and how quickly Vietnam reconciled with the United States. Maybe, and for a lot of reasons, you know, obviously they consider themselves the winners of that uh, conflict, uh, and they are, but the atrocities that were perpetrated on their people by American soldiers were pretty intense. And yet, they saw the greater good in becoming diplomatically and economically linked to the United States. And they're not a democratic country now, but they're a much more prosperous country than they would have been. And kind of understanding, at one point I asked someone whose father had been put in one of the prisons like John McCain was as a POW, or not as a POW, he was Vietnamese, but you know, taken into custody. And he said, well, we have a Confucian ideal of reconciliation and, and coming back together and healing and getting along and compromise. And I was just like, you know, that's something that Americans could learn, <laughs> that we have a hard time with that. We have a different role in the world. So there are good reasons for that. But I was really struck by that. I think the West keeps grudges a lot more than, than that philosophy as it was described to me in its purest form really is. And it's done them well. As I said, their their economy is really, really improving. So you have had a really interesting journalism career and you talk about it in your book. Tell me about how did you end up at CGTN? What was it like working for CGTN? So 
I have tried a lot of things and done a lot of things. And I think when I wrote this book, I realized that the through line really was putting myself in cross-cultural situations. I don't think I knew that going into CGTN. For me, I was enjoying the issue set. There was a lot of business coverage, a lot of really interesting and thorny foreign policy issues to cover. And it was a different time in U.S.-China relations. When I started freelancing for them in 2010, Hu Jintao was the president. Xi Jinping was the vice president and hadn't consolidated power as he has now. Trade was up. Trade friction was down. There was a lot more hope and change in the relationship. And yet they were interested in the in reporting on things such as the CFIUS process, which is the for the uninitiated by you by no means need to be initiated, but it's right. the national security review for business deals that are between a foreign entity and a U.S. entity. It's reviewed by the U.S. government for national security implications, and it's one of the levers that are increasingly being used to stop deals from going forward between U.S. and Chinese entities. They were fascinated by that process, so I became, you know, sort of dove into that. I would say the people that I worked with at CGTN, the type of person that I would argue are the sort of reformers, they had a reform mindset. They wanted to bring light and understanding to the Chinese position on global issues. And I felt like that was a worthy goal because there was not a lot of understanding 10 or 12 years ago. You could argue there's not a lot now, but there certainly wasn't then. And that's helpful. I, I think at the heart of what I do as a journalist is is shine light. And I think shining light on their foreign policy and how they view the world is important for Americans and Westerners to understand because it's a totally different paradigm than the West approaches foreign policy with, and particularly the United States. It has a lot more fingers of historical, really lack of forgiveness over past issues, <laughs> frankly, which sort of belies the Confucianism. I really enjoyed the people I worked with. I found a lot of it incredibly challenging and the hardest part for me is I'm a very task-oriented person, and it's a very relational culture, the Chinese are. And yet, a lot of my assumptions about Chinese culture were incorrect. For example, there might be a centrally planned economy, but it's there's there's not a lot of hierarchy and organization. Well, there is a lot of hierarchy, but there's not a lot of organization in how you approach what you're going to cover for the next month. Planning was a, ver a really big challenge in that environment. It was like it was almost like our managers would wait to be told what to cover as opposed to letting us tell them what to cover initially. Sort of what the pace of Washington is. You know, we have a August recess, we have the state of the union, we have a rhythm to covering US politics and that can all be anticipated and put on a calendar and we can plan coverage around that and then do the the breaking news when it happens. So there were just a lot of layers as I mentioned earlier, that big layer cake. I do think that over time, I realized how much I needed to soften some of my positions, not editorially, but personality-wise and presentation-wise and how I would approach problem solving. And I wish I had been better at that sooner. I was not. I was a bull in a china shop, figuratively and literally speaking uh, frequently. That's at the heart of why I wanted to write this book, is I think we don't have time. We don't have time for our young people to learn some of the lessons that I took the long way to learn. Tell me about when did you decide to leave CGTN and why did you do that? I left in 2019. My sense was that the editorial issues were going to get more challenging to navigate with journalistic integrity. There was also during that period of time, a lot of attention by the Trump administration on Chinese media. And as someone working at the White House, it just wasn't my fight 
it was not the fight I wanted to be in the middle of to defend and be put in a position to defend decisions that were made above me by my managers about how we would present the news as an organization. I've only ever been able to speak to my work, but I couldn't speak to colleagues' work, particularly colleagues that were not in my bureau that were being much more influenced by nationalistic tendencies in Beijing. It was time to go, and I really appreciated the time. I learned so much about so much that really is invaluable for U.S.-China policy, and I hope we can get to some spirit of engagement some point down the road, but we have to have a leveling and a reckoning, I think, before that about the inequities in the relationship that have allowed China to take advantage of particularly the definition of a developing nation, which it really cannot be argued that it is any longer. It has aspects of its huge country that are developing, but it's a huge economy. It's the second largest economy anymore. You don't, you don't get to be a developing economy anymore in the World Trade Organization or at the United Nations. You need to pitch at your level, and I'd like to see them do that. Would you say they're going to someday be a democracy? No, nope. I don't think that's cultural. I don't think that having centuries of emperor rule is conducive to, and the Confucian philosophy of compromise and conciliation and reconciliation is conducive to the independence that's required to govern yourself with democratic thinking. That doesn't mean that they won't come to a different system at some point, but I don't have my hopes up in my lifetime at this point because it would take an uprising and everything that's happening inside the country is creating at best a golden cage for the wealthy where they, they can go so far if they don't say the wrong thing, but they'll never be able to earn the kinds of large sums of money that unless they're incredibly politically connected and, and people look the other way, which is what you'll find when you look at people related to government officials. Not unlike the corruption in our own country, but just we do register our lobbyists <laughs> and we do call out nepotism and we do have a, a press that is interested and whose agenda should be, according to the constitution, to shine light on those things and the people should act when they see them. Doesn't always work perfectly, not going to argue that it does. I still think it's a better system than being told what to do all the time, being monitored, having every inch of your life and finances monitored, surveilled. I can't imagine if I chafed under the American South in the 1980s, I can't imagine <laughs> living under that type of surveillance and control. Well, look, this has been great. I loved your book, Jessica. I encourage people to go out and buy it. I want to thank you for being on today, and I want to encourage people to go out and read your new book. Thank you. It's Crossing the Divide, 20 Lessons to Help You Thrive in Cross-Cultural Environments. You can pick it up on Amazon. You can also ask your bookstore to carry it. I'm in two distribution channels, so especially a really good book for graduates, for people who are looking at technology or communications jobs or anything in the policy arena. I just think we've got to help our young people be successful. And this is a soft skill set that they don't always get in school. So give it to them. Thanks, Jessica. You bet. Good to be here. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 